Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 133. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us through another wonderful Passover season. We are now counting the Omer as we look forward to the next great festival on your calendar, which is Pentecost, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of, of celebrating the uh, the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai and celebrating the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, among his people. Thank you, Lord, that you're continuing to um, uh, demonstrate your goodness and your mercy to us, showing us who you are through the pages of your Torah, through the pages of the scriptures, um, uh, revealing your power to us through the fellowship uh, that we enjoy with one another and the, um, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that uh, our seders were filled with Yeshua, our our Passover lamb, our unleavened bread, our our uh, first sheaf who rose from the dead. Uh, thank you, Lord, that all of these truths are relevant for us as we now connect Passover to Pentecost, the season of our deliverance, the season of our freedom, connecting that to the season of our infilling. Lord, um, we were set free by the blood of Messiah in uh, Passover, and then we're going to be filled with the spirit of Messiah at Pentecost. So thank you, Lord, that that your calendar shows all of these things and demonstrates them to us. Continue to carry us along as your people. Protect us from this pandemic. Keep us safe. Keep us strong and give us a witness uh, to be able to share the good news with those others around us. We'll keep, be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the preeminence of all these things. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. As always, my name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi, and this is um, these are the live internet studies. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you. I'm a tour teacher at Congregation Keilat Tunuva in Thornton, Colorado, known as the Harvest Congregation. And um, uh, you can see on my screen right now, I've got the Harvest website pulled up at graftedin.com. Uh, you can join us online. Um, join us. Uh, go to our website and uh, scroll through some of our resources. Uh, if you're still playing it safe and don't like to get out and you don't want to visit our congregation, then uh, take notice of our YouTube channel and our YouTube videos. Uh, we're uploading sermons there so that you can stay safe and watch uh, uh, the sermons from there. But otherwise, if you do get a chance to join us live at our congregation, we'd love to have you come on out. Um, we have moved 
this live internet studies and I'm going to be talking about that in a little bit uh, but first uh, let me let you know that I've got my own website at tatesatora.com you can find me online at www.tetzetorah.com tatesatora.com from the homepage uh, click around on any of the links that you see on my screen right now that'll take you into that particular study I've got written commentaries available I've got audio commentaries that are available usually the iTunes podcast, MP3 files, things like that. And as of late, I've been uh, putting together a lot of YouTube videos. So uh, just feel free to avail yourself of whatever resources um, uh, you find uh, relevant for your studies there. I've also got a YouTube channel I'd like to introduce you to. Go to YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C for channel forward slash Tate Torah Ministries, and that's my YouTube channel uh, address. Uh, go to my YouTube channel and check out all the videos that I upload. In fact, let me click on the little videos tab, and you can see some of how I've been keeping busy. We're in the middle of the Passover season. Um, well, we've just come out of the Passover season, but I'm still um, uploading uh, Passover uh, uh, videos that you can see here. I've been on this long um, episode number 132, uh, uh, Movie Night Live 2021 that we did a few weeks back and so we're still uh, watching those videos but um, now we're back to our normal uh, schedule uh, you can see the color the change in the color scheme there uh, we're going to be uh, uh, talking about the Romans 14 study tonight and we'll be uh, looking at our Shema study so let's jump right into some of the details these are live internet studies and as I mentioned we've switched our um, meeting times this is episode number 133 the meeting date is for this recording is April 5th, 2021 USA date. The meeting time, Monday evening, 7 p.m. to approximately 8. Oh, still says 8.30 there. I need to switch that. Um, sometimes it actually does go an hour and a half. It should say 8 p.m. Central Time. We've moved from the Friday nights. I'm sorry. We moved from the Saturday nights to the Monday nights. And we're just going to stick on Monday night for at least to the month of April. I'll see how it works out with everybody involved. Uh, perhaps some new people can join us on the small group. That would be great. Um, if there are problems, we'll go back to Saturday night. If not, I can choose a different night. Uh, you know, I'm flexible. Here are the topics that we normally cover. In the hour-long segment, broken up into two parts, segment one, 30 minutes long, Romans 14 unplugged, feast and fast and food, oh my, part 50 tonight. We'll be doing a lot of reviews, so nothing really new for tonight's study. Segment 2, 30 minutes long, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 35 tonight, and we will be looking at some new verses there. And then the featured YouTube video will be on... Um, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, entitled The Power of Resurrection. Since Easter, or Resurrection Day, was just uh, yesterday, or depending on what time you're going to be listening to this commentary, just earlier this week, um, I thought it would be nice to look at a commentary or YouTube video that was still themed towards uh, the resurrection and things like that. Passover and Easter, or Passover and Resurrection, typically fall near one another on any given year. Sometimes they're, they're, they're far apart from one another, but this year they're, they're close enough, almost within a week of one another. So um, we can still look at those themes on uh, resurrection and things like that. Um, briefly, if you're interested in joining us for the live internet studies, 
uh, find a way to get Skype, get access to Skype, whether you're on a, a, a computer like a desktop laptop or if you're on a smartphone or an iPad or an iPhone or something like that, you might need to download an app. But uh, get access to Skype. But more important, you're going to need the, the Skype group link. And as I always mention, the easiest way to get that is go to my website at takesaketor.com. Scroll down to the very bottom in that black section where it says Weekly Parashar Archives and click the little link, uh, little icon on the upper right that looks like an envelope. That'll send me an email and that way you can reach out to me and say, Ariel, can I have the Skype link? I'd like to join the live studies. I'll send you the Skype link and you can join us week after week. And that's the easiest way to join. And then lastly, real quick, if um, you're in a place where you've got the ability to bless uh, me, uh, financially, and you'd like to do so, this is the way to do it. At the bottom of my website, there's a little yellow donate button. If you click that, you can securely send funding through PayPal using a bank account or a credit card, and uh, that way you can share with me and help uh, help me out in this difficult time that I'm in because of the pandemic. And as I always mention, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Alrighty, let's jump right into the study. Let's turn to uh, Romans 14, um, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. Let me bump that uh, font up a little bit. We're going to be doing a, an, uh, basically an overview, a review, um, since we missed uh, uh, almost, uh, almost two weeks. And so we won't learn anything new tonight. For those of you who are maybe first time joining us, this will just be review for you. And so I won't be as long before you tonight. Let me tell you where we're going with this particular study. So I wrote a study. It's available on my website at tatesatora.com entitled Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. And um, the study itself is a look at the chapter of Romans 14, but within the context of the whole book of Romans as a whole. And so the scope and the style of the study is broken up into these different topics that you can see on my screen right now from my commentary. And so let me just read some of those bullet points for you. And, and then I'll actually look at some of the verses and tell you what we gleaned from that particular part of the study. In Romans 14.1, Paul talks about uh, those who are weak in faith. And so the first question we entertained was, who are the weak in faith? And um, look at, I'll tell you, uh, when we look at the verse, uh, I'll t tell you what we came up with in a moment. The second bullet point that we um, entertained, which is all of these are questions that you can see, these are my own questions, is uh, in verses 2 through 4, we asked the question, what is the contrast between anything and vegetables? So is this a discussion, for instance, with Paul telling the readers, hey, some people eat anything and some people eat vegetables? Is he trying to tell us some people keep kosher according to the Torah and others don't keep kosher according to the Torah, but it's fine no matter which one you choose. It was that the um, interpretation of what Paul's getting at in those verses. That was what we're um, entertained by that particular question. The third section, the third question, covered verses 5 through 9. And the question was, are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? And uh, based on that particular discussion, we're trying to find out, is Paul really saying some people pick Saturday as a worship day, some people pick Sunday as a worship day, some people pick a different day, Friday, who knows? The point is, it doesn't matter which day you pick, the point is pick a day that works for you, between you and God, and whatever you're comfortable with, just go with that, and that's acceptable to God and to me. 
Is that what Paul's saying in that particular part of his letter? Or is he in fact talking about some other type of special day rather than a worship day? Perhaps he's talking about a fast day. Perhaps he's talking about um, another type of, um, uh, you know, a special holiday or something like that. Those are the discussions that we had for that particular section. The next section that we've been looking at is Romans 14, 10 through 13. This is kind of where we're at now, is who is the brother of this particular section? Um, is he talking to Christians when he says brother? Is he perhaps maybe implying that there's a brotherhood among Jews and Gentiles that expands beyond the smaller church groups? In other words, a larger brotherhood that would include Jews and Gentiles who are worshiping God together, but not necessarily worshiping Messiah together? How does Paul use this word brother in this particular section? That was what we were trying to look at in that uh, part. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'll read the um, questions from the other sections, even though we're not really there yet. Eventually, we're going to go on to look at Romans 14, verse 14 through 18. The question being, what exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply? This will be discussion about kashrut again. So it's going to be related to um, the previous section that we looked at right there. Is Paul saying that it doesn't really matter um, what the Bible says is unclean, uh, Yeshua has cleansed everything, and really now it's just between you and God and your conscience as to what you can eat or what you cannot eat. Um, what does Paul mean by nothing's unclean in and of itself? You know, a lot of ambiguity behind that phraseology. We're going to look at that in time. Uh, in verse 19, uh, the question is, how can we make for peace and mutual upbuilding? If we've got two different uh people groups in the same community, Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other, um, you know, believers in Jesus, uh, people who don't believe in Jesus, um, you know, slave and free, male and female, you know, you, you remember some of the other verses that Paul talks about. How do we all come together? How can we make for peace and mutual building if we've got different calendar days, if we've got different uh, um, table fellowship requirements? How can peace and mutual building even come together? Right? That'll be a good uh, discussion when we get to it. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 14, we'll ask the question, what does everything is indeed clean mean? Again, it'll be re related back again to the previous two sections. Nothing is unclean in and of itself, and uh, what's the difference between anything and vegetables? So Paul keeps, keeps circling back around again to this food-related issue. Right? Why is this so important in Paul's mind? What's so big about table fellowship in the first century that had Paul kind of devote almost a whole chapter in his letter to this particular topic. And then the final section we'll look at verses 22 and 23, the last two in the chapter, which ask the question, how do we keep the faith we have between ourselves and God? Um, you know, at the end of the day, so, you know, you make this decision that this day is special and this food is acceptable. Should you share your opinions with, with your um, other community members or should you keep it to yourself? How does that all work out, right? What's Paul trying to imply when he says, keep the faith you have between yourself and God? I mean, how big should that be? So those are some of the topics that I'm going to be looking at over the course of time in the study. Uh, but for now, real quick, let me just look at some of the, the, uh, the topics. 
Uh, what did I say in verse um, 1? Uh, who are the weak in faith? If you look at the passage, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to, let me scroll up there, but not to quarrel over opinions. Um, basically, in the commentary, we looked at, um, we looked at some of the Greek uh, which you can see over on this side of the screen. And we tried to ascertain who this week in the faith is, this, uh, the Ostenunta Tepiste, uh, like we see right here in the Greek. And as, I, as far as I can tell, there are two primary ways to interpret the week in faith. One of the more popular ways that you're going to find in most Christian circles, Christian commentaries, sermons, uh, seminary uh, materials, uh, Bible study groups, etc., etc. The more popular, the more prevalent way of interpreting weak in faith is that Paul's addressing, he's referring to Jewish Christians. They've placed their faith in Jesus in the first century. However, they're still demonstrating a preference and even a necessity of walking in the Torah of Moses. And thus, the the fact that they believe in Jesus but have not given up their Torah observance places them into a category that Paul calls weak. Their faith in Messiah is strong, but their their ability to um, demonstrate a freedom from the law and a freedom from all of that, those mosaic restrictions um, is, is um, uh, uh, plays itself out in the fact that they are uh, weak. They're, they're, they're weak in, in the fact that they can't let go of those mosaic legislature yet. So that uh, places them in a category of weak. It's not necessarily a pejorative position, but it is a position that they should eventually outgrow. It's like they're it's like they're potty training, right? They're still they still can't give up those diapers just yet, right? They still need them at night or the I guess the good nights or whatever. I, I sorry about that. I hit my mic from mute. I myself was a was a, a bedwetter until I was like twelve, so <laughs> I had to wear the diapers a lot longer than uh, than other kids did. But you know. Um, it's not that my mom and dad looked down on me for uh, wetting the bed, uh, you know, up until I was 12, but they did have the expectation that, you know, Ariel, you should grow out of uh, having to, to need uh, to wear diapers for so long. You should be potty trained by this point in time. You know, they didn't love me any less because I wet the bed for so long. But the point I'm trying to bring up is it's almost like these people who are weak in faith are kind of still, they're like... The, they're the bedwetters, you know. We love them. They're still our children. You know, they're, they're precious to us. But we just realize that they've got some weaknesses that we need to help them work through and to, to overcome. And eventually, they'll become they'll come to the place where we are, where they're they're strong in their faith. They're you know they don't they don't have to wear uh, diapers or good nights to bed or something like that. You, you guys understand my little analogy that I'm using there. And so. Um, uh, Jewish people still holding on to Torah keeping, or Gentiles for that matter, um, they're weak in faith. That's the predominant uh, position. But as I've um, talked about in my commentary, I think that's probably the the um, not the better way to historically describe this term weak in faith. There are other possibilities, and there are other probabilities, in my opinion, in my research. And one of the stronger probabilities is that the weak in faith uh, are those who have not yet made a profession that Jesus is the Messiah. They have an, a messianic expectation, and they're open to discussion on the topic, and they are certainly welcome to have Gentiles who believe in Jesus in their synagogue circles. So they're not hostile to the Gospels, what I'm trying to describe as Jews. Um, 
but so they're, they're, they're still part of the, the larger covenant community, but the weakness is not attached to their Torah observance. The weakness, the weak in faith, that, that label is attached to their decision about who Jesus is at the moment. And because they're in decision mode and because they're open to the idea, then it only takes witnessing to them, you know, Gentile to Jewish witnessing, to bring them over into the position where their faith in Messiah is strong, uh, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah that they've been hoping for, waiting for, and have indeed been expecting. And so I think there's a lot of um, strong possibility based on other factors in the text that that's what's going on. The uh, second section, um, what is the contrast between anything and vegetables, covers verses 2 through 4. Paul talks about a person believing that he can eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Again, the weak person, if he's a Jew, which both um, uh, uh, explanations agree that it's probably the Jewish um, part of the communities that are the weak. We just assign different um, designations as to or different um, definitions of what, the, of what the word weak implies. But I think nearly every Christian commentary agrees that the weak are the Jewish components of the group. And uh, according to verses 2 through 4, the Jewish people were still eating these Jewish believers or Jewish unbelievers, depending on which way you're spinning the term weak in faith. They're still eating only vegetables because of the questionable um, factors when it comes to diet in the diaspora in, in ancient Rome. Can you keep a kosher diet, especially if many of the Jews got kicked out of Rome because of the, um, the edict by Claudius, Emperor Claudius? That would have disrupted the um, kosher food supply, right? If all of your kosher butchers got kicked out of Rome, well, then suddenly it's going to be difficult to keep kosher. Well, what are you going to do? You default into eating vegetables because those are, those are kosher. So it's just a restriction on meat as a Jew. But if Paul's telling them that the Gentiles, as Christians, they just can, they can eat anything they want. In other words, they don't have to keep kosher. It's only the Jews who are preferring to keep kosher. How does that factor in with the fact that um, Paul himself was a lifelong Torah-keeping Jew? Does that mean that Paul was one of the weak in faith? Right, because Paul also kept the Torah uh, calendar as well. So this is where we got a lot of mileage out of this discussion and playing of the words weak in faith into this phrase, uh, the persons who are weak eat only vegetables and things like that. Um, anything versus vegetables. Is Paul saying that um, it's okay to eat anything and that the cash root diet mentioned in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 is uprooted in Christ? It's been overturned. Can you really eat anything? You know, any ham, any shrimp, any lobster, any pork, whatever. Um, or is he uh, saying that, no, it's actually um, anything within the scope of Torah keeping, you know, in other words, anything that was already biblically permissible versus a vegetarian diet based on the questions there. Um, I think there's, a, again, a better, a strong case that could be made that it's the second, it's the latter case that Paul's talking about anything, but still within the Torah guidelines versus uh, keeping a vegetarian diet. I think that Paul was expected his communities to understand that he was a kosher-keeping um, Jewish man, Jewish believer, and they wouldn't have any problem emulating the lifestyle that he himself kept. And so it's based on that that we went into the um, this uh, third section uh, found in verses 5 through 9. Are Christians free to worship at God any day of the week? Based on um, verse 5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Is Paul saying that some of you in the group 
keep Saturday Sabbath, which of course would have been, according to the predominant Christian interpretation, would have been the Torah-keeping Jewish believers. And then some of you keep a different day. One of you esteem a different day alike. Was Sunday keeping already cropping up at this point in time in Paul's letter when he wrote the, the letter in the, like say the mid sixties uh, or I'm sorry the mid fifties or so when this letter was penned of his day? Again, the popular opinion is that Paul is actually giving license to keeping whatever holy day is acceptable to you personally, which, in my opinion, would make it very difficult to have any kind of group cohesion wherever you went. I mean, what if you had a congregation of, say, exactly 100 people, including the leader, right, the pastor, whoever, and you took a vote, and 50% of you voted on Saturday keeping, Sabbath keeping, and 50% of you voted on Sunday keeping, you know, what do you do? You're, you're, you know, you got a deadlock. Did you go into a filibuster? I don't know, right? What do you do to solve the, 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 the deadlock, right? Um, you know, because half of you voted personally to esteem one day, and the other half of you voted personally to esteem a different day. You know, Paul says it's okay if you do whatever's, um, uh, whatever your conscience is telling you should do. I don't think that's the, really the best way to interpret this passage. Um, it's more likely that, and we looked at this in my commentary, it's more likely that what Paul is referring to when he talks about special days being esteemed over and against one another are fast days which are not mandated by the Bible, mandated by the Torah, and thus are open to personal interpretation. Holy days are open to um, being fully convinced according to whatever is going to suit your personal needs. And because it's a personal fast day and not a corporate fast day, then it can be something that would not disrupt community cohesion. So you have 10 people who say, hey, we're going to fast on Tuesday. Anybody want to join our little Tuesday fast group? You know, and those 10 people go on fast on their own. But yet we still meet on the same meeting days. See what I'm saying? The other uh, 90 people who eat on that day, uh, they, they still all worship corporately on the same day, but they're fasting on their in their homes at different times or whatnot. So I think that's a little easier to work with historically and socio-religiously, uh, working with the, the, the historical data that we have to, uh, available to us. I think it's a better fit for the context um, uh, because Paul has never, in any of his letters, um, displayed the Torah, uh, the, the, the commandments of the Torah as something that was optional and kind of put to a vote according to your own personal conviction uh, type of aspect. He's never really said, okay, you know, God's commandments were given, but if you're not fully convinced that you should, that you should be keeping them, then just kind of pray about it. And if, if you're fully convinced that you should be keeping this part of the Torah, then go ahead and keep that. But if not, that's acceptable too, because God accepts you, right? Uh, like he goes on to say in the next few verses, uh, you know, if, if, if you if you honor a certain part of the Torah or a certain day, God will God will uphold you. He'll He'll honor you. You give thanks to God because of that. You know, it's never really been that way uh, in, in ancient Israel or in any of Paul's letters. So why would we suddenly put Sabbath under that particular um, uh, restriction or or description or paradigm or or use that particular logic flow when it comes to Sabbath? So that's what we looked at uh, that part. Um, and then the last section that we looked at uh, in my commentary, and we haven't even really gotten to the other four bullet points, is uh, who is the brother? 
And originally, if you look at um, uh, starting in, in verse um, 10, where Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Right? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. We know that Paul's talking to brothers. And we know historically that if you look through the rest of Paul's excuse me, through the rest of Paul's writings, that there's the extremely strong case that Paul's referring to brother Christians, fellow believers across the the ethnic lines, Jew and Gentile, across the um, uh, social lines, you know, male, female, slave and free, all of those things. Brother is a term that came to be used in the emerging um, communities of the first century by the Christians to describe fellow brothers in Christ, brothers in Messiah. And so earlier on in my study, I was trying to um, get you to understand the bigger picture of brotherhood, but I realized that it was probably causing a lot more confusion than needed to be. So I shrunk that uh, scope down to the smaller um, circle of immediate context, brother here, just like the Christian commentary say, I firmly believe that he's referring to Christians when he says brother here. However, with that being said, I've not abandoned my larger definition of this term brother when Paul needs to apply that, and it's in the back of his mind, I believe, as well. And this larger application of brother is the brotherhood of covenant members who would um, include Jew and Gentile in Messiah, but also include uh, unbelieving Israel in the scope of brotherhood. And the reason I can say that is because Paul does use brother in other parts of Romans as well as his other parts, other letters. And he means brother Jews or he means brother Israelites, which equates to brother covenant members. And the fact that that Paul would readily agree, we know this to be true because in Romans 11 he says this, that Paul would readily agree that Israel is still part of God's plan. National unbelieving, stumbling Israel are still brothers to the scope of God's plans of salvation history. And therefore, if unbelieving, stumbling Israel are still part of Paul's brothers, and they're still sons of Abraham, even if, the, if it's only at the natural level, and they're still within God's scope of, of, um, of um, salvation history, then it's only a short step from of uh, conceding that um, two Gentiles in Messiah who've been grafted into uh, Israel as a family and grafted into Abraham's family as well, that Jews and Gentiles should be seen as brothers. In other words, it causes, and this is kind of looking forward to this whole idea of uh, making for peace and mutual building and things like that. This idea that if the Gentile, if Paul wanted the Gentile Christians to understand that they have broken covenant brotherhood from national unbelieving stumbling Israel, well then how could he expect them to um, have any sort of of um, of uh, of what we look, what am I, what am I looking for? Um, any sort of compassion to continue to reach out to them, to try and bring them to a place of salvation and acceptance of Messiah. If there, if there's in 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 psychology, we call this othering. O t h e r i n g, other, where we where we're looking at 
uh, from our perspective, we're looking across the railroad tracks at those people who live on the other side of the tracks. And we have this kind of this human nature. We have this human um, kind of tendency in our flesh to look at anyone other as different and alien and strange and kind of look down on them, right? We, we have this tendency to compare what we have to what they have. And we somehow uh, want to prove or demonstrate how what we have is better and more advantageous and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's called othering. You can look this up on the internet, othering. It's kind of, I learned this when I was um, studying psychology in college. So if Paul wants the Gentile Christians, which would include Jewish Christians as well, if he wants them to practice othering over and against national unbelieving stumbling Israel, the end result would be that the church, so to say, would be separate and distinct and would see themselves as different and not in need of any assistance or any interaction with national, unbelieving, stumbling Israel. But I don't believe that's what Paul wants. As I understand reading through his letters, he wants the opposite. In fact, if you go back and read through chapter 11 of Romans, you'll find that he's going to go great pains to warn the Gentile Christian church away from having this kind of othering attitude, this haughty attitude, this high-minded, prideful, we don't need you, we've replaced you type of attitude that on Unfortunately, the Gentile Christian church did foster down through history. I'm not saying all of the church does today. Thankfully, many in the Christian church have uh, of, uh, repented of that mindset and have seen the error of that way and are uh, beginning to recognize that a greater unbelieving national stumbling Israel, although she's in a position of unbelief when it comes to Messiah, nevertheless, and I'm coming full circle, she's our covenant brother. She's our brother, and she needs us to learn about their Messiah, about our Messiah. We've got to witness to the unbelieving Jews and bring them into the family. So I think Paul would agree with that particular assessment. So that's where we went with the uh, the study. We looked at all of those particular questions, and um, uh, Next week, we'll see if I can draw a close to the part, uh, who's the brother. We what, what I did in my commentary, let me just scroll back up and show you where we're going to have to go next week, is um, I rewrote some of this to include a, a lengthy section entitled Background and Historical Audience. And from there, I'm backtracking in my commentary to show how the intended audience of Paul's letter includes a background necessary to appreciate why he wants Jews and Gentiles working together with one another, particularly in all of these matters of, for instance, uh, special days, holy days, um, table fellowship. All of these are really big deals in the first century. Maybe they're not as big as, uh, to us today. Table fellowship in Jewish and Gentile uh, Christian um settings today isn't such a big deal, uh, especially between the um, rabbinic Jewish synagogue and the say the evangelical Christian church or you know there's we're not really worried too much about meeting together and worshiping together and eating this at the same table but in the first century this was a big deal and so we'll continue to look at that as we go along okay and that'll do it for uh, our Romans 14 study feast and fast and food oh my Let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. I don't know why my bookmarks don't don't stay where I want them to be. Uh, 
when I blow up my screen, that's what happens. So, um, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we have been working our way through, let me just drop to the bottom of the screen, we've been working our way through this chart that uh, you can see on my screen right now that Carm put this chart together. Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Matt Slick is the um, uh, founder and leader of Carm. And um, from the list, what we're determining is this concept of encountering the God of the Bible through the historical narrative, through the miracles, through the actions, through the words, through the sayings, through the, the eyewitness testimony, through the things that are said about God. All of it fits together in one big picture. We're trying not to, to allow and give weight. You know, it's not overly weighted on the Old Testament versus the New Testament or something like that. We're trying to paint a balanced picture of who is God and how do we interact with them. The chart is helping us do that by showing different titles and attributes and looking up the passages and um, determining uh, which person is in view, which part of God, which um, attribute of God is being described by any particular um, individual, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, things like that. And so we've worked our way through um, most of the table, I think, probably half of it, most of it. We're now down to a part where it talks about that God speaks. God speaks. And uh, we looked at God has a will uh, a few weeks ago, week, about a week and a half ago. And this idea that God speaks is tied into the idea that God is a personal being. He's not this impersonal force that created the object and then took his hands off his creation. He is not the force. He's not just the, um, the um, what do we say, the impersonal uh, 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 power that keeps the universe running or something like that. He's not like the electricity in your house. Um, the idea that God speaks indicates that he has will, um, he has volition, he has freedom, he has intelligence, uh, he can communicate. And we're not just talking about um, making noises, right? You know, animals make noise. And we sometimes interpret that as speech. Hey, listen, my dog said, I'm hungry, or my dog said, hello. You know, we, we interpret through the barks, or, you know, my cat said, meow, but to me it sounded like it's saying, I love you. You know, that's not quite the same as speaking. God's speaking is intelligible. It's, it, God speaks using the language of men, right? And um, we're going to find this out through the text. Now, of course, animals could speak if God enabled them to, right? The donkey spoke the words, right? Balaam's donkey spoke because God enabled it to speak. But on the whole, and I, I know some people, somebody's going to write into me or put a little comment on my one of my videos and say, oh, but wait a minute, parrots can speak, right? There are other animals that can speak intelligible words. What about them? Okay, um, we've got a term, term for that. It's called parroting, right? Parrots, can they really create all of their own speech or are they just mimicking, right? Um, so can their vocal cords just form words that, that we understand as speech? That's not quite the same category as the category we're looking at. So let's look at this tonight. We've got 
um, passages when it comes to the Father speaking. We're going to look at um, Matthew three seventeen and Luke nine thirty five, where we're going to see the Father speaking. When it comes to the Son, we're going to look at Luke five twenty and Luke seven forty eight. We're going to spend a lot of time in Luke here, as you can see. There are so many more passages we could have looked at. Um, in fact, I am going to pull in a few extra ones uh, on the Father. Uh, but this is just a smattering. This is just what uh, uh, Matt Slick put together. And then when it comes to the Holy Spirit speaking, we're going to look at. We're going to stay only in the Book of Acts. Um, for uh, the Holy Spirit speaking three passages, Acts 8.29, Acts 11.12, and Acts 13.2. And then after that, we'll jump right into the short little video, and then we'll, I'm sorry, we'll do the um, liturgy, and then we'll do the video, and then we'll close our study night. So let's just jump through these real quick. This isn't going to take a lot of time, because theologically speaking, whether you ascribe to a, a, a Trinitarian model of God or a Unitarian model of God, I think both parties, both um, uh, groups agree that uh, God speaks and that intelligible speech is something that any person can possess. In other words, the fact that Jesus can speak doesn't make him God. That's the argument I'm trying to bring up. God speaks, and that really doesn't make him God either. I mean, I'm speaking to you right now. Does that mean I'm God? Well, that's ridiculous. So the fact that these persons speak, and the fact that we're going to bring these passages up, is not proof that they are a deity. But the context of what they're speaking about, perhaps the conversation that they're having at the time that we're going to be looking at, and the overall fact that God as three persons possesses intelligent speech that he can speak in the language of man, and yet he's God, just helps us to paint the overall broad picture that we're dealing with a God who has personhood, his personality. He has intelligence. Uh, he has uh, free will. In other words, he's not an object. He's not an impersonal force. He's not an animal. He's not a thing, right? Um, that's the whole point of bringing in this discussion. So let's just walk through these particular passages. Let me um, pull up, uh, let me see. The first one is going to be Matthew 3.17. So um, in Matthew 3.17, which we're going to back up to verse 16 to catch the context, this is a discussion where uh, Yeshua is coming up out of the Jordan of being baptized. And this is a great actually little triadic section of Matthew where we have a mention of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit all in the short space of, of, of narrative. And so in Matthew 16, Matthew 3.16, right here, um, Matthew records, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So notice Yeshua's in the picture, the Spirit's in the picture, and then we're going to see in verse 17... And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Father is in the picture. So this is a triadic, not necessarily a Trinity passage. This doesn't prove Trinity, but it does mention all three persons in a short space of time, which does fit the definition of triadic, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all mentioned in the same um, setting. And so uh, germane to our study is that in verse 17, the voice from heaven, which we take to be the Father, says, this is my beloved Son. The voice from heaven said, right? The voice said. What are we trying to get at? Well, the Father has a voice. He can speak, right? God the Father is not an animal. 
and he's not an impersonal force of energy, right? Last time I checked, the electricity in my wall cannot speak to me. Hasn't had doesn't doesn't possess the ability to to uh, utter words that are intelligible to me, right? I, I haven't yet heard it speak to me. Likewise, dogs and cats that I might meet on the street, you know, I could walk up to them and I can talk to them in English or any other language, right? I, I know a little bit of Korean, I know a little bit of Hebrew, I know a little bit of Greek, I know a little bit of Aramaic. I, heck, I even know a little bit of Japanese and Chinese as well, or even a little bit of Spanish or French or German. You know, all of us, most of us have like a smattering of words that we can speak in any given language, right? You know, truth be known. None of us, I'm not trying to make myself, you know, out to some, out to be some type of um, multilingual uh, person is what the point I'm trying to make, right? I'm not a polyglot, but I could speak whatever language I want to, to a dog or a cat. And last time I checked, they can't reply back to me using any of the languages that I address them with. Hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. And yet in the text here, the father, the voice from heaven, speaks and he doesn't say woof woof or meow meow. And he doesn't go bzzz, right? He doesn't sound like electricity. What does he say? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He spoke intelligibly. So the father is intelligent. The father speaks. Let's look at a second passage. In Luke uh, chapter 9, it's the same um, of um, uh, story from Luke's perspective. Um, in verse 35, it says, And a voice came out of the cloud. I'm sorry, this isn't the same story. What was I thinking? This is uh, uh, Yeshua on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um where uh, the the uh, 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 the disciples had gone up with him, and uh, we can see in verse thirty three that's uh, you know Peter saying, "Hey, it's good that we're here, right?" Um, and the you know the cloud covering the mountain and things like that. So the Mount of Transfiguration. This is that account. And so in verse thirty five, a voice comes out of the cloud, and this voice says, "This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him." Indeed, in verse thirty six, and when the voice had spoken. So again. Um, the narrative is describing the father speaking to the son. It's intelligent speech. It's something that uh, the disciples have recorded. Luke recorded intelligent speech. He didn't record just utterances or sounds like even thunderings or you know barking or or, or you know groanings or anything like that or murmurings or um, you know a sound of zapping if God as if God were just some impersonal electri electrical uh, power or something like that. God God the Father has an intelligible voice that can be understood by humans. And it's not just understood in the, in, in the spiritual sense. It's actually can be received and interpreted by, by our physical ears. Um, there's sound moving through the, uh, the sound waves. And so those are passages that are easy to understand. And I don't think anyone would really argue with them. Uh, Karm didn't have this particular voice in their chart, but I decided to bring it up on my own. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, I brought this verse up to show that sometimes God speaks directly, like we saw in the Matthew and the Luke 
narratives. There doesn't seem to be any, say, go-between or intermediary where God's speaking through some other person's, right? God's, God's empowering that other person to speak. But we know from a fact, from this passage, that God can empower another person, a human to speak. So God empowers the prophets to speak and the fathers, like it says in verse 1. God empowered the son to speak, like it says in verse 2. So sometimes God speaks directly, like he did in Matthew and in Luke, and at other times God speaks through chosen individuals. So that's entirely possible as well. Does this diminish his speaking ability? No, he can speak however he wants. He's intelligent. He's God. He's not just an impersonal force, or he's not just some some creature that has, that doesn't have the ability to speak. He can use whatever means he is at his disposal because he is the creator. So those are the three passages that talk about Father God. Let's turn now to uh, God the Son in Luke 5.20 and in Luke 7.48. As I mentioned, this is going to take very long tonight because the theology behind what we're looking at is very, very easy to understand. In Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 20, um... Yeshua speaking to this man that he healed, he um, he said, uh, in verse 20, it says, and when he saw their faith, this is the paralytic that was lowered down into the room, through the roof, uh, in the room where Yeshua was speaking that day. You guys recall the story. He, when you, when he, we could stop and park out on the phrase that, and the fact that Yeshua saw their faith, right? Uh, last time I checked, faith isn't something that's visible. How did he see their faith? We'll talk about that a different day. But it says, he saw their faith and he said, man, sins, your sins are forgiven. Or uh, uh, man, human, uh, the Greek word is uh, anthro, anthro, anthrope, um, your sins are forgiven. Uh, and then verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so there's two things in the passage that I want to highlight. The first thing I want to highlight is the fact that Jesus speaks. Yeshua said. So, in the Karm table, God the Father speaks because he has a voice. He's intelligent. He has a working brain. He's He's not an animal. He's not a creature. He's not an impersonal force of electricity. He can speak, even though he's a spirit. Likewise, God the Son speaks. He has a voice. Of course he can speak. He's a human. And so Jesus said, and what did he say to the man? Your sins are forgiven. That's the second point in this in this narrative. The Jewish leaders who were within um, who were there that day understood that God alone has the power to forgive sin because sin is ultimately an affront against the only one who's um, ultimately holy, which is God. And therefore, when Yeshua says your sins are forgiven, how could Yeshua forgive sins unless he's somehow equating himself with God? And they picked up on that, and that's what it says verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to ask themselves, who is this guy? He speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Aha! That's the point. It's not just the fact that Jesus has the, the power to speak. Of course he can speak. He's a human. We all can speak to the degree that, that God has granted us speech and to the degree that our vocal cords and such are healthy. But Yeshua's words are uh, uh, conveying something just a little more than the ordinary. He's speaking 
forgiveness over this man. And that's something that they picked up on. So running with that particular theme, let's look at the next passage. In Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 48, Yeshua speaking this time to the woman who had broken the uh, uh, the jar of ointment and, and uh, began to wash Yeshua's feet with it. I believe that's the woman, if I scroll back up to... Um, Verse uh, 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Right. So yes, this is the woman who, she, she took this ointment and she poured it on Yeshua's feet. Uh, I think she broke it, actually. And she begins to wipe, wipe his feet with her hair. And when we drop down to verse uh, 48, um, uh. I'm sorry, let me jump up to verse 37 first. Yeshua says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then in verse 48, And he said to her, Let me keep both verses in view there. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. So speaking to her, he tells her your sins are forgiven. So again, the same two things in this passage. Number one, God the Son speaks. He has intelligent speech. He's not an animal. He's not a thing. He's not a creature that can't speak, right? Jesus is not a creature. He's not an uh, uh, he's not some metaphysical force of energy that that uh, you could experience, but you couldn't talk to. No, no. He has the power of speech. He's a human being. He can speak. So he tells the woman, your sins are forgiven. That's the second part. Just like in the previous account of the paralytic who was lowered through the roof on his stretcher, and Yeshua healed him and then forgave him, and the Pharisees had a problem with that, the same thing is going on. Look at verse 48. He said to your, her, your sins are forgiven. And look at verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Again, the same concept in the first century. There was the understanding that God alone is the one that we sin against. You can sin against a human being, but ultimately, as man is created in the image of God, ultimately you're sinning against God. Because only God is the one who is infinitely holy, and God is the only one who can ultimately forgive you of that sin which you commit against him. So for Yeshua to utter the words, your sins are forgiven, without maybe giving a clarifier like, uh, God forgives you, or my Father in heaven forgives you, or something like that. He speaks these words as first person, your sins are forgiven. The people around him understand what's going on. You're making yourself out equal to the Father. You're making yourself out equal to God. And Yeshua doesn't correct them. He doesn't um, explain. No, no, no. I'm not forgiving her. What did, you, what did you think? I was the one forgiving her? No, no, no. You're mistaken. I'm not the one forgiving her. It's my Father through me who's forgiving her. Don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to make myself out to God. No, no, no. No, he didn't say that. I don't see that in the text. <laughs> so what we have here are accounts where not just Jesus is speaking, but the words that he's speaking equate him with God Almighty. Okay, let's turn now to the three passages that Carm uh, 
uh, put together for the Holy Spirit. And these are going to be found in the book of Acts. And the first one that we encounter is Acts chapter 8, verse 29. And this is a familiar story of um, the, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. And we all know the story. The Ethiopian eunuch is going along in his chariot, and he's reading through the book of Isaiah. And he's reading Isaiah chapter 53, and you know, the reading about the suffering servant. And he has questions about what's going on. And Philip happens to be there. And what do we read in verse 29 of chapter 8 of Acts? And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And of course, verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? So what's the point of the story? The Spirit said to Philip. Notice that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, said the Spirit said. The Greek word is um, right here, apen. The Spirit said Luke could have recorded the Spirit impressed upon Philip to go over and join the chariot. The Spirit empowered Philip to go over and join the chariot. The Spirit gave Philip a strong urge, right? We could have, Luke could have wrote, wrote any type of verb in there, but he didn't. He wrote, The Spirit said to Philip. I think Luke wrote exactly what the Spirit told Luke to write in regards to what the Spirit told Philip to say. Because this the same spirit that empowered Luke to write the account is the same spirit that told Philip to go over to the chariot. So the point being, the spirit speaks. The spirit speaks. The spirit is not an impersonal force like electricity in your wall. He doesn't just speak in zaps and pops and whistles or buzzes, right? Like electricity does, right? Or hum, right? It's not this like, right? It's not like, that's not how the spirit communicates. The spirit has intelligent speech. The spirit uses the language of men, right? The spirit can speak. The spirit spoke to Philip and told him to go over and uh, to minister to this particular uh, gentleman who was reading the Bible there. I think that's quite wonderful. Let's look at the next passage. Acts chapter 11, verse 12, um, which is um, the spirit account of Peter. Right? This is right after Acts chapter 10, which we're going to back up and look at in a moment. But first, uh, Carm's chart says in, in Acts um, 11, verse 12, and the spirit, this is Peter, Peter recalling the account of what happened in Acts chapter 10. He's telling the story again to those disciples who were asking him, why did you go into the house of these Gentiles and eat with them? You know, what's going on? He's telling these Jewish leaders now. And he says, the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. The Spirit told me to go. Now again, Luke is the writer. Luke could have very well said, the, you know, recalling what Peter said, Luke could have said, the Spirit impressed me to go. The Spirit gave me this urge to go. The Spirit gave me this strong feeling and I decided to go. But Luke didn't use those verbs. It's the same um, Greek word that we saw earlier, apen. The Spirit spoke Told me he used intelligent speech. This is what Peter said to those men, and that's what Luke records. And of course, this is what uh, this this matches what Luke uh, records in the previous chapter in Acts chapter ten, starting in verse nineteen. Reread, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, "Behold, three men are looking for you." So, see, it's the same language. It's consistent. 
Peter says, while the, he was pondering the, the vision, the Spirit said to him. Now, this is slightly different than if you go back up into the earlier part of the chapter. If you look at Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1 and 2 and 3 and such, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave arms generally to the poor, and prayed continually to God. And verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into him and say to him, now, here we have an angel speaking, but the context says it's in a vision. So perhaps maybe I can hear someone say, well, if it's a vision, then who knows if it was actually an actual utterance. Was it really a voice? You know, if it was a vision, then it was kind of inside of the mind, the spiritual mind of Cornelius. Um, maybe, you know, we would say he's in a trance. Now, I understand Peter talked about being in a trance as well. The point being is, it, it, it doesn't really matter whether it's a trance or not. Um, neither of the accounts mention uh, use verbiage that indicates that it was some sort of internal feeling on the part of the human involved. It doesn't say that Cornelius um, got this feeling that the angel was speaking to him, or that the angel was, was communicating with him. It doesn't talk about feelings and things like that. It says the angel spoke to him, or the angel said to him, or say to him. So, um, it's actually even the um, uh, the same Greek word that we talked about earlier. Where it says, uh, sorry about that, where it says apen, uh, epanta, right there, is rooted in the same Greek word as the verbs that we saw earlier. Point being, an angel can speak as well. Does this mean the angel is God? Well, of course not. It simply means that the angel has intelligent speech. So lots of lots of things speak. God speaks. Angels speak. Spirit speaks. Yeshua speaks, humans speak, but what doesn't speak, right? Dogs and cats don't speak in the same way that these other um, uh, created or uncreated um, uh, persons or beings uh, speak, right? Uh, animals don't have the same speech capabilities as angels or humans, for that matter. So what's the point in all of this? Karma is trying to alert us to the fact that when we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, something that helps us to understand who God is and what his makeup is, right, the ontology of God, is that God as a spirit, keep in mind, remember that God is a spirit and the Holy Spirit is a spirit. It's only Yeshua who's a human. God is not a human and the Holy Spirit's not a human. Only the Son is the human, right? The other two persons of the Trinity are both spirit. But the point is they are not impersonal forces of energy. God the Father is not some uh, force, you know, like Star Wars, that you can channel um, that doesn't have a voice. Rather, God the Father has personality. He has a voice. He speaks, and he uses speech that's intelligent to men. In fact, he can speak in the language of men. And the Son has speech, and likewise the Holy Spirit has speech. Look at the next passage, Acts chapter uh, 13, verse 2, last passage in Charm's chart, in Charm's chart, Acts 13, verse 2, while they were worshiping in the Lord and fasting, speaking of the disciples, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The Holy Spirit said, care to guess which Greek word this uh, English word said is? 
Yeah, I think you guys can figure it out by now. It's the word apen, which is the same word we've been looking at through most of this, uh, most of the uh, um, passages. It's just the normal Greek word for speak or spoken to or uh, said or something like that, um, uh, some, something to that degree. In other words, the spirit didn't just make a sound that they interpreted as speech. There wasn't a, a thunder or a lightning or a rumble or a musical note or a growl or or a um, uh, a, z- a zapping sound of electricity moving through the air as if the, the spirit was just some impersonal um, power that filled the room. Um, and then they said, oh, did you hear that? I think it said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. You know, that's not what's going on. Uh, Luke simply says that the Holy Spirit said. And uh, this is the same terminology uh, that's used throughout the rest of the Bible when it talks about other people speaking. Right? Um, it's just a normal word for said, speaking. So there's nothing unusual about it. It's not unusual because God is intelligent. He has intelligence. He speaks. So that'll do it for a look at the Trinity study tonight. Um, next week, we'll uh, keep working our way down through this chart and we'll look at this um, uh, part, one of the more uh, uh, favorite attributes of God, which is love. God loves, the Son loves, the Spirit loves, right? Last time I checked, my electricity in my wall doesn't love me. At least it can't express it. Not that I can tell. Now, um, do I appreciate it? Yeah, you bet. But I can't tell if it loves me or not. Same likewise with any other impersonal object, right? The MacBook Pro that I'm recording this YouTube video on, right? I love it, but I don't know if it loves me, right? I love my Mac, but I don't know if it loves me back. Um, It works for me, and that's a good thing. So we'll talk about that next week, okay? And that'll do it for our discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy real quick. We're going to borrow the same liturgy that we did um, before we went into the Passover season because we want to just add a bookend to the Passover season. I won't wax long. I'll just read the liturgy, and then we'll jump right into the video. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, starting over here on the left side of the page in the English. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And verse 4. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Let's go back up and read the Hebrew of that same uh, section. Starting over here on the right side of the page in verse 1. The Hebrew says, Hadavar ha-sher ha Yeshiyahu ben Amoz al Yehuda vi Yerushalayim. Verse 2. Vahaya ba'achrit hayamim nachon yye harar beit Adonai burosh heharim vanisa migvaot vanaharu elayv kol hagoyim. Verse 3 right there. Says in Hebrew, Vahalhu amim rabim. Va'amru l'hu v'na'ele 
El Har Adonai El Beit Elohe Yaakov Ve Yorenu Mizrachai Ve Nelcha Be Orchotaiv Ki Mitzion Teitzei Torah Ude Var Adonai Mi Yerushalayim And verse 4 right there The Hebrew says Ve Shafat Ben Hagoyim Ve Chochiach Le Amim Rabim Ve Chitati Har votam le itim vachanitotehim le mismerot lo yisa goi el goi cherev velo yilmedu od milchama. Let's turn to the Apostolic Scriptures passage. Galatians chapter 2, verses. Uh, I want to jump down to verse 15 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Starting right there on the left side of the page. The ESV says, Galatians 2.15. This is Paul speaking to Peter. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 16. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, or by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, For I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's go back up real quick and read the Greek. Starting in verse 15, right over there. The Greek says, Hemes fuse, eudaioi kai uk ex ethnon hamartaloi. Verse 16. Edates de hati u de kaiutai, anthropos ex ergonamu, in me diapistios Christu Jesu, kai hemes es Christan, yusan, epistusimen, hina de kaiuthomenek pistios Christu, kai uk ex ergonamu, hati ex ergonamu u, Dikaothesadai pasa sarks. Verse 17. A de zetuntis in Christo uathemen. Kai altoi hamartoi ara Christas hamartias diakanas meganoita. Verse 18. A gar ha catalusa tauta palen oikadamo parabatein. Chautan sunestano. Verse 19. Ego gardia namo namu namo apethanon hina theo zeso. Verse 20. Christo sunestauromai zo des ukete ego ze de in emoi Christos ha de nun zo in sarki in piste zo te tu huio tu theu tu. Agapesantas me kai paradantas hautan huper emu. And the last verse, verse 21, uk atheto t 
tain karintu theu e gardia namu dia decaio sune ara Christos dorian apethenin. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video. And after the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. When Abraham began to make his journey to Mount Moriah to offer his son for a burnt offering unto Hashem, his dialogue with his servants is very significant. He told the young men in verse 5 to abide with the donkeys while he and Isaac went to the mount to worship. He went on to say that both of them would return. This was after he had clearly been commanded to offer his son as a sacrifice. Do you see the significance of this statement? It demonstrates the incredible faith that this man Abraham had in trusting Hashem for the promises. Abraham had been told that his seed would number the stars of the sky innumerable. If he were to have to kill his son, his only son according to promise, in obedience to the word of the Lord, then the Lord would have to somehow miraculously resurrect him. This is shown in his statement, I and the boy will return. Here is the pinnacle of God's demonstrative power, resurrection from the dead. We know from further reading that Abraham did not actually kill his son, but the Torah figuratively teaches that he did. The book of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's chapter 11, verses 70 through 19 from the NIV. Bringing forth life from lifelessness is a power that no other created being possesses. This is why it is the highlight of the miracle-working power of the Almighty. Yeshua therefore demonstrated his position as Hashem's chosen Messiah by being raised from the dead, thus conquering death once and for all. We see that resurrection therefore serves as the proof of God's choice of election. All right, that'll do it for the short little video. Let's close in prayer. I bless your name and thank you for the study. I thank you for the students. I thank you for the material. Most, uh, most of all, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who has uh, preserved your words 
and you've um, carried us along by your Holy Spirit so that we can understand your words. You have carried your words along and superintended them so that they can be preserved and that they can be studied by us. They can form the um, uh, the foundation of our relationship with you and uh, the strengthening of our communities. Lord, if we don't hide your words in our heart, how can we know how to have a right relationship with you? Thank you, Lord, um, for your words. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for uh, um, giving us an objective standard in which we can govern our lives by. Uh, continue to, to protect us, Lord, during these difficult times. Continue to provide for us, uh, for those of us who are still seeking employment. Uh, bless you, Father, for the generosity um, of uh, people who um, are in places where um, they have surplus and they're able to give. I personally thank people for uh, helping me in, in uh, my own personal ministry needs and things like that. Uh, Lord, I'm so uh, thankful to have communities uh, worldwide who I'm able to uh, minister to via this particular medium of internet and uh, YouTube and podcasts and websites and things like that. Lord, uh, keep me accountable. Help me to uh, continue to to um, look to you and to praise you and to thank you for all of your provisions and your protection. And Lord, as communities, keep us safe and bring us back together next week. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Yeshua. Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 